Hi, Tim Cask here. Facing a TVK and don't know what to do? Well, you might if you had listened to Save for Half. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Tally ho, everybody. Welcome to Save for Half, number three, where we talk about this time. Classic D&D, or at least Basic Expert, by Tom Moldvay and Zeb Cook, Steve Marsh. But first, with you always is the man who is hip and funky fresh, DM Mike. I am joined by the Queen of Kobolds and all other less-than-one-hit-die creatures, DM Liz. Well, if by queen you mean tend to get her butt kicked by less than one hit die creatures, then yes, that would be me. Hello. (laughs) And joining us also is the man who rides his donkey donkey down to the honky tonky so he can get funky funky (laughs) DM carpet. I do like my donkey donkey. He's so nice. (laughs) Well, who doesn't? You know? I can't help but notice that both you and Corbett are funky in some way in your yeah. introductions. Yeah, we're with the cool kids. That's right. Not dorks at yeah. all, Liz. No, <laughs> totally not. It's there. Of course you are. <laughs> uh, anyway, so as I stated, we're covering Moldvay Cook Basic Expert this time. And we're going to do the usual top five discussions, et cetera, et cetera. But first, does any of us have any announcements or anything, or should we just get right into the meat of the show? Well, I I sort of have an announcement. It's going to be quite some time after this by the time anyone is able to listen to this episode, but we are recording on March the 4th. This is the anniversary of Gary Gygax's death, and so I would just like to suggest that we are recording in memoriam of Gary Gygax and therefore are covering some of our old stomping grounds, classic D&D. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to have met Gary before he passed and you you hear all sorts of rumors and stuff of him being a hard ass or something, but he really wasn't. He was a great guy, very generous and always willing to answer questions, even from the stupidest people. It was... Never yeah, lost he totally killed you in that game that we played with him, though. <laughs> but it was fun. I drowned fun in, in that dungeon. I always heard he was magnanimous, a really nice guy, and he could shoot lasers from his eyes. Oh, okay. Well, 
all of that is true. Yeah, yeah. Well, except for the lasers thing. I just heard that. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Well, let's uh, head into top five, I guess. Super duper. The Save for Half Top Five in five, four, three, two. Top five, Moldvay Cook. Well, first impressions. And we'll start with Liz. Okay. Um, well, it's been a been a long time since I've cracked open the the Moldvay cookbooks. So I love <laughs> that. <laughs> I didn't I did not even mean that. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good thing because it sounds like you're cooking Moldvay. <laughs> I know. Okay. It's been a long time since I've looked at these and I've got to say I have a much better appreciation for the Moldvay Cook rule set now than I did when I first got the box sets back when I was maybe 13 or so years old, I guess. By the time I got the basic and expert box sets of these, I had started out with Holmes Basic, and I already had gotten the core hardbacks for AD&D. When I got the basic and expert box sets, after that, I was reading through them, and I remember being rather disappointed in them, because compared to what I already had and what I had already read, I remember thinking to myself that it just seemed very babyish in comparison, hmm. and I was just really unhappy with it and didn't use it a whole lot. But rereading it later on, I've got a much better appreciation for the clarity of the overall rule set and just how succinctly it explains all of the things that I would have, I was taking for granted knowing already as a young teenager then. So you know, I've got a different feeling about my overall impression now as opposed to back in the day. Okay. I actually started with Expert. Because one of the nice things about Expert is is it's got rules in there for you to use it with both Moldvay Basic or Holmes Basic. So I had Holmes Basic, and then I went to Expert and only got Moldvay later. My first impressions, and of course anyone listening to this surely knows about D&D, but we'll do a quick run-through. Six attributes, strength, intelligence, wisdom, constitution, dexterity, charisma, in that order, 3D6. You have fighter. Are they not? Did they already no. switch it? Yes, that was one of the first things I looked for when oh. we started this. It's like, ah, oh, you switched the order. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, go on. Seven classes, three of which are races, fighter, magic user, cleric, thief, elf, halfling, dwarf. All right, with that background in, Corbett, first impressions. Honestly, it was one of my favorite books as a kid. I think it just uh, it's one of those things that you, grabs you by the, the cover. <laughs> but just, which, by the way, is okay to be grabbed by. Yeah, that, that Errol Otis cover is pretty rocking. The two covers intersect. Uh, that, that was one of my favorite things is the two covers because he used – well, I'm sure it's, it could be a lazy artist trick. But I, I presume that was his intention was to make the first cover of one design and the second cover an, an implementation of the first cover and a new cover around it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, it gives yeah. That, that feeling of continuity. Yeah. Uh, I will ask, did you ever – Break those books apart and combine them as they suggested. God, no. 
I have never met anyone who did that. I didn't do it either. <laughs> I mean, the idea of just chopping up my book, I'm like, are you nuts? No, I'll lose we stuff. suggest you use an X-Acto knife yeah. to For carefully a- cut out the individual pages. <laughs> no! But I did forget that it had the sta- or the uh, the hole punches. I had actually forgotten all about the hole punches because I'm used to always seeing the Menser cover without the hole punches. Yeah. I mean, I did end up keeping them in uh, a three-ring binder, but, yeah, I never oh. broke them apart. Yeah, I had a Trapper Keeper that I kept mine in. Ooh, ladies roll back there. Trapper <laughs> Keeper. That's why she's not a dork, Corbin. That's they, true. They, trapper she, Keeper. She had awesome. a Trapper Keeper. That's right. Okay. Well, then, I remember when I first looked at them, I thought they were a very clean, as much as I love my homes, more orderly setup than the Holmes box game ever gave me yes i must grudgingly agree with you (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty much my coverage then and so we're going to go to top five and start with liz Ah! yes not me (laughs) okay my number five i guess i will start at the beginning of the basic rule book and talk about how i enjoyed the foreword It was a pretty cool blend of an introduction to the book itself, interspersed with some fictional gameplay segments. Also, another thing that I really enjoyed about it is, you know, again, right out the gate, it says, In a sense, the D&D game has no rules, only rule suggestions. No rule is inviolate particularly if a new or altered rule will encourage creativity and imagination. They always say this, not just in the basic rule sets, but they also say it in the AD&D books too. And yet, so many times you have so many people who are such, you know, dare I say, hard asses about the rules. It's like, no, they must be played as written in the books, even though every single rule set has that caveat that... These are suggestions. Change it up if that's what works for you and your group. It's uh, yeah. I I don't necessarily get it. I mean, obviously, you got to if you change too many of the rules, you're not really playing D and D anymore. But on the other hand, you don't want to be like this is written for, like the Ten Commandments, and you cannot break any rules. No, no, that's that's not. But anyway, I'm pretty sure I do remember Gary Gygax coming down with the two sets hand in hand and then everybody playing some other game and him smashing it. And, and then we were worshiping a, a, a golden, a golden, see, that been 85, a gold, <laughs> was it a golden shadow run or something? Yeah. And he tossed the tablets at it to destroy it. You fools. And rebuke us. <laughs> and we had to wander for 40 days around Lake Geneva or 40 years around Lake Geneva, you know, <laughs> Ah, yes. Isn't this the same lake? (laughs) (laughs) No, clearly not. (laughs) Is somebody mapping? Come on. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Nobody mapped because how can you get lost? There was no mapper. (laughs) Well, if you have to be stuck for 40 years somewhere, there are a lot of worse places to be than Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. (laughs) Like the Sinai? (laughs) (laughs) It's at least a resort town. (laughs) Very true. All right, Corbett, what's your five? Uh, you know, uh, one of the, uh, since she picked the front, I'm going to take the back. <laughs> uh, well, actually, the glossary is, I think, the very back. Or well, there's a map I think, on the on the main on the uh, the basic book. But the uh, inspirational source material 
It is a great reading list. Just like flipping through it, uh, it's uh, if you ever just wanted to like get caught up on a general amount of fiction from the last hundred years or so, <laughs> it's a good list. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone always goes on about the Appendix N in AD&D, but the suggested reading in Moldvay Cook is nothing to be sneezed at either. There's some good books in there. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but there's also several books that are in the classic list that aren't in AD&D. Yeah. And vice versa. Well, I just so, I, I love yeah. the fact that they have the Ro- Ro- no, Roger Zelazny stuff. Uh, over to Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and C.S. Lewis and L. Frank Baum. I mean, just great mm-hmm. classic literature. Yeah, I remember reading J.R. Holmes's article in Dragon 52, I think it was, where he was talking about the new Mulvey set. And he basically thought that the list was a really great idea and had more books than he had put in for the Holmes version. He really liked it. So, yeah, that's definitely a plus. Yeah, and that must have been I would think it must have been kind of hard for Eric Holmes to have to review a basic set that came out after his. Only three years or so. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if it had been me, I would have been kind of thinking, but mine was all right, wasn't it? Why did you have to make a new one? And (laughs) Because of lawyers. He he was (laughs) He's really gracious about it, I think. And, you know, I, I, I think it, it would have had to have been a little hard to have to go out and, and publicly write, this is awesome, even though it's not mine. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well. Lots of people make stuff that's really awesome. There's nothing wrong with liking something. Yeah, but I mean, this was supplanting what he made. And so <laughs> yeah. I, I just think it would have been a bit As a writer. Well, actually, uh, let me let me approach it to you as an artist, Liz. Uh, as an artist, if you did a really cool picture that you were really proud of, and then somebody came by and said, you know what, I love your picture, but I redid it this way. What do you think? Would you consider that an insult or flattery? It would if her, her piece of art had been being sold and making decent money for three years, but now it had to be thrown out to sell that person's picture. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of the thing, you know. <laughs> it's not like his set of rules and the Moldvay Cook set of rules were then being sold concurrently, and you could pick and choose whichever one you liked better. Well, but but so, from a historical perspective, neither are being sold concurrently anymore. So what up? But they were. <laughs> but that wasn't the case in Dragon Fifty Two. See? Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. Well. My number five is I'm drifting over to the expert part of the books. One of the big things that makes the expert set stand out is it gets you out of the dungeon and allows you to adventure in towns and wilderness areas. And they give some very simple but effective wilderness exploration rules. And I like them. I especially like some of the things about getting lost or starving to death seem to be taken out of Avalon Hill's Outdoor Survival which was recommended for people to use for wilderness stuff in the little brown book D&D days. And I think that's a nice little little homage there. I, I liked the, the chances for getting lost bit. I did think the whole possibility of starving to death, though, is a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> we're on this grand adventure, and we're going to save the realm. Only, like in Oregon Trail, we died of dysentery. dysentery. We even got to the... <laughs> Two days out of Greyhawk, you die of dysentery. Ah. It's like, oh, wow, that, that's bad. 
this was well, not I, the way I envisioned the adventure going at all. Actually, I think outdoor survival's rules were harsher than this. Scary. That would have been disappointing in The Hobbit. Like, we're off on this grand adventure to return a ring. <laughs> we got attacked by a bear. Now we're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> or we attacked by a bear. We killed it. Ate it. It gave us dysentery. She died. <laughs> ah, yeah, lose a bit of the heroics there, don't you? Tiny bit. Yeah. Oh well. Okay, so over to you, Liz. Number four. Number four. Alrighty. One of the things that I noticed reading through that I had never noticed about the Moldvay Cook basic expert rules before. This was the first time I realized that this was in the rules. So I feel kind of dumb. And yet, at the same time, I can't recall anyone ever playing it like that. So, But when I was going through magic using, spell casting, magic items, talking about scrolls. And in the Moldvay Cook, you have to cast Read Magic on a scroll to understand it before you can even use it at all at a later time. And I had not been aware that that was how that worked. In every game that I've ever run or played in, if you found a scroll in a dungeon, you could just unroll it and peek. And if you were a magic user and it was a magic user spell scroll, you could tell. So it was like, oh, this is a scroll of continual light. Okay. And same with clerics. And we never had to cast read magic on scrolls to know what they were. This really floored me as I was going through these rules again after X number of years. Like, holy crap, if I've been doing it wrong all this time? <laughs> that was one of the rules, at least in my experience. We knew it was there, but almost nobody ever enforced it. They just did it like you said. No, it never made a lot of sense. I always, It always made more sense that if you are a magic user, you have probably studied magic and therefore could read. Yeah, it's... Especially at low levels, you know, magic users have a hard enough time. Now you're going to make them take up one of their first level slots with read magic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand you want to make read magic more important and yeah. more useful. Yeah, if you're a first level magic user, and you know, this is something else about the Moldvay Cook magic system. Apparently, you are only able to have in your spell book the number of spells that you are able to cast in a day. So if you're a first-level magic user, you are only allowed to have one first-level magic user spell in your There's spell There's only one book. page in your mm-hmm. book. Yeah, well, I, well, you've got all these blank pages, <laughs> you know, but the way the rules are written, if you can cast one spell, you only have one spell in your spell book, and that is it. And when you get to second level and you can cast another second level spell, you can put a second first level spell in your spell book. And you can't have more first level spells in your book than you are able to cast during a day. I I suspect that was a rule people didn't really enforce. If you're playing it as it is written... And, you know, again, see the forward, change up whatever doesn't work for you. But if you were playing it as it was written, you could not use any scrolls unless you had read magic. So as a first level, the only spell you are able to cast for your the entirety of your first level career is read magic. And how many of your fellow party members are going to get a little ticked off that the magic user that they're protecting can't do anything except read stuff? <laughs> yep, very much. 
So what you're saying is that the creators of this this version were sitting around the table going, you know, guys, what we need to do is really weaken the mage one more time. What do you think? That's right. <laughs> well, that falls into that bit I found where if you lose your spell book and need to do another one, it's like a thousand gold pieces per spell level plus a week of intense writing to put it in your spell book. Holy crap, this is still the same game that's doing a scrolls only a hundred gold pieces. But no Kevin, you, you gotta read magic though before you <laughs> That's a good point. Good point. But still it's like wow that's harsh. I, I consider myself kind of a harsh DM and I'm going wow that's harsh. Well you you have to protect your spell book. You can't yeah. just be setting it down near the campfire or anything. Mm. <sighs> okay. Over to you, Corbett. Um, you know, I would probably follow along the same notes. I uh, opened up the miscellaneous magic items section and honestly got waved with uh, nostalgia because of the elven cloak and boots, the gauntlets of ogre power, and like, oh, those were so cool. And then I, mm. I read the Helm of Telepathy, and uh, I had kind of forgotten this one too, but I just really, it's a, a magic item I just never think about because why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very few you know, people go, all oh, right, a helmet telepathy, cool. It's like, oh, a helmet telepathy. How much do you think we can get for this? Yeah, <laughs> but because I had always assumed, and when you assume, you look dumb. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> but when you, you look like a dork. Yep. But no, I, I, look always, like I would assume like, oh, you, you just send messages to friends around you without talking. Handy, useful in a stealthy situation or when you're trying to sneak out. No, no, no. It's designed to send thought images or messages to any creature. And they specifically say creature, not people, not sentient things. <laughs> so I'm wondering what cows do you need to telepathically link to for a game <laughs> purpose? <laughs> Mo. Hey, they, they, you're walking down the road. There's a herd of cows just right in the middle, and they will not move. But fortunately, Bob has his helm of telepathy, and he is able to communicate with the cows and get them to get the heck out of the road. So oh, great. Can... Now, now I have this mental image of this farmer, Beat Feasel or Bubba, sitting out there with a helm of telepathy. <laughs> Keep them cows in the pasture. Bubba, right. you head back to the barn and get that helm of telepathy. <laughs> Where'd you put it? Be, he used to be an adventurer when he was young. And young he and took stupid. an arrow to the leg and had to quit, but he got that helm of telepathy. And well, he could only... His farm. He could only cast that one spell, and then he forgot it. <laughs> Where's the helm? Mama's making gumbo in it. <laughs> now all I can think of is gumbo. <laughs> I put the helm on and I smell gumbo and I'm thinking of gumbo to everything. Oh, uh, yeah. Ability to talk to gumbo is not helping. <laughs> I would think it was just okay. a funny oddity, but yes. Okay. Go ahead. The one thing that stood out to you. The only thing. That was it. All the rest of it was just blank pages because I only have the one page. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of magic items, my number four is talking about, again, the expert book because it provides the idea of intelligent swords. Oh, yeah. Ooh. You know, the usual D&D intelligent swords have powers, have personalities, blah, blah, blah. Well, what I found interesting was rolling up the swords alignment. Nothing wrong with that, but rolling a d20, a 1 to 13 makes it lawful 
<laughs> 14 to 18 is neutral and only 19 or 20 chaotic. What? Is there like a factory that makes swords and they're supposed to be lawful, but you just have a few that just one or two kind of screw up every now and then? Shouldn't there be more chaotic swords than that? No, it's a um. it's a rule in the <laughs> EU. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's like value-added tax or oh, yeah. something. Mm. Yeah. Oh, okay. You can only export well, so I- many swords. They're, they're probably just trying to encourage the players to be lawful characters because most of the magical weapons they're going to find, they are going to be of lawful alignment. You know, if you want a kick-ass intelligent sword to make you awesome, nine times out of ten, it's going to be lawful. So it's probably in your best interest to play a good character. But seriously, 65% chance? I think just for role-playing possibilities, it's a lot more interesting to have more evil swords that are going to try to kill you when you pick them up. But if you're going to die, it's a lot more interesting to die from an evil enchanted sword trying to kill you than starving to death because you got lost (laughs) in the (laughs) world. Dysentery. Yeah, Yeah, it's a bit more heroic, I'll grant you. Well, I guess it could be the fact in, in sort of the same mentality of making a robot. Like if you were, go- well, okay, fictitiously making a robot, you would want to make one that obeys the laws and follows your orders as opposed to one that randomly does whatever it wants, whenever it wants, and destroys everybody. Yeah, I guess it, will be, it would fall into a matter of where the, the DM making their campaign, where those swords came from to begin with, I suppose, would, would do that. I just thought it was really too much, but that's just me. So. Well, you know, those are all tables, and you're randomly making up the sword. That's making the assumption that, as the DM, you don't already have something in mind for how you want this intelligent sword to be. What? So I can just choose what I want? You, you, you think that this is Doctor Who or something? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Roll on this. You know, you want if to, you then want just pick to it. have an intelligent sword be part of a treasure that your players are going to find, I think it kind of behooves you to create the idea of the sword beforehand instead of just, oh, well, I'll randomly roll it up. It's like, oh, this is not something I really want them to have at this stage in the campaign, but I rolled it so I have to. Yeah, you're just one of these role-playing hippies. Yes, yes, I am. (laughs) Just give him a helm of telepathy and he'll be fine. Yeah, the sword gets a helm of telepathy. There you go. Yeah. Control over all cows. (laughs) Sword is cow master. (laughs) Ha ha. Okay, say this, Liz. (laughs) Okay, um, are we number three now? Number three. Number three. All right. Okay. Um, I feel like I should probably talk about something in the expert rules instead of just Sticking totally to the basic. Basic, basic, basic. Mm. Okay. Um, Something I did not care for in the expert rulebook, spell research. (gasps) Not that I don't like the (laughs) idea of spell research. I just didn't like that they really don't go into any detail about it. There are no real rules other than tell your DM what you want to do and he will decide if it's possible. And, oh, by the way, it costs this much money per level of spell and this much time. Kind of what they did on magical item research, too. I I, I want ideas for doing it in game. And (laughs) it's like, no, just write it out, give it to your DM, and he'll tell you if it's something that you can do or not. 
It's like, Wait, oh, kind of boring. Didn't you just diss Mike over the fact that he was rolling up random swords and you were saying you can control that as the DM and now you're saying that you have total control and you don't want that? Come on, yeah. Liz. <laughs> yeah. I want role playing. <laughs> ah. Give me my role playing. Ah. Let me get my bond there. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. I got another table I want to talk about. No. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree. I think the uh I'm sorry, just a note on that. I, I think the research idea wasn't well written out, but I, I did like the idea of being able to do it. That's one thing they don't talk about much yeah. ever. Yeah. It's a cool idea. I just wish that they had gone more into what the nuts and bolts of it would have been for your character to do it. Well, it's a subjective line though. How much do you give that gives you enough information so you know what you're doing and how much is gonna straightjacket you? Too true. Okay, no sorry. one will be admitted around the game table during the pulse-pounding library research scene. <laughs> but but I want to do some of that, though. As opposed to the let's go shopping for a rope scene? <laughs> well, you know, we wind up having to do that, so why not? <laughs> yeah, well, no, everybody has, gets rope, whereas only the magic user. You guys have fun. I'm going to be researching for the next two, three weeks. Bye. That's right. <laughs> now, for this hour, I'm going to spend a lot of the time over at the, uh, the, the bibliography section. and uh, I'm looking things up in the card catalog. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a real card catalog when there were cards yes. in the drawers. Ooh. As well, we just to- lost everybody born after 1990. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, man, we're old. Why am I listening to them? <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, okay. So for my number three, number number three, right? Number three, number three, number three, number three. three. Inheritance. This was actually in Holmes, if I remember right. But I had forgotten all about inheritance. It's Mm -hmm. uh, you you get uh, you pay the ten percent. Yeah, you pay ten percent to the taxes or something, and you get all your stuff back again for your next player or your next uh, character. Sorry, players and characters aren't the same. <laughs> don't kill the player. <laughs> Unless yeah, you've had a really yeah, bad night. Because <laughs> I did that once and I it was hell getting another group back together, I can tell you. <laughs> I did a TPK. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of weird that I never ever played it that way. And I had forgotten about the rule existing because it's maybe when I was really, really young, I was playing that way. Like, oh yeah, it just all would- goes to my last character and the next character gets it. And it's usually just, yeah. I start a new character, and I'm going. I vaguely remember playing it on occasion back in the day, and I mean really back in the day, the early 80s. Here's so-and-so who is the cousin of the character that just died. And- <laughs> but for the most part, most DMs that I played under didn't want to do that. They're like, no, no, your new character has no connection whatsoever. Besides, because that's mostly because when my character actually died, it was the party that grabbed everything. <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing left for the new character to inherit is really what it boils down to. Like p- piranhas cleaning the skin from the bone. That's <laughs> that right. Yep. Yeah. Players are there. It's for. like, oh, he's not going to be using this anymore. <laughs> Why did they check my spleen for emeralds? <laughs> hey, swallowed. he had a helm of telepathy. Sweet. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> no cow will be safe. <laughs> okay. No, that's a that's a weird one. And you know, the, even in AD and D, the original Goldenrod character sheets had the little will on the back you could fill out. Because you will die. Yeah, <laughs> you will die. Although, I 
will, I will say for the Moldvay cook, they do stipulate you can only do this once. You can't just keep on inheriting, inheriting, inheriting every time your your character dies. Because Louis the Seventeenth, right? <laughs> and it's like you know you are allowed to do this once, and then that's it. You know. Which also makes me kind of scratch my head because, well, what's the rationale between I can leave my stuff to a uh, family member once, but I can't do it twice? Um, um, I would say maybe do it once per campaign. Because what if you're in the middle of a really important campaign and your character dies in the middle of it, and so you're going to be joining back up in the middle of the adventure as a new person? And you well, might kind no. of need some of that stuff, but... If it's a brand new campaign, etc., you know that's then it's not quite that important anymore. Maybe mm-hmm. you know I, I, I always I just change to that. a different type of character because I would switch from fighter to magic user to fighter. Yeah, that doesn't help any much. <laughs> <laughs> My magic user leaves all his possessions to his thief cousin. Yeah, that doesn't. Really <laughs> <happen>. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, my number three is the Moldvay basic rules has the best description of how to do combat i've read in any DD product period mm. it is clean it is concise it is easily understood you managed to work in a plausible surprise and initiative system certainly at the time it was the best described in my opinion mm. it was awesome oh totally agree. certainly well, i liked it too i love my holds i really do but you know, he he just did. He didn't even do initiative. It's well, you know, you're whoever has the highest dex goes first. Well, yeah, and in the case of a tie, then you roll a die. Then you roll off. Yeah, I look at it. Okay, historically speaking, which you should be doing this, Mike. I don't know why I'm the one doing it, but it was uh, Gary was the one who got a pile of notes from Arneson, from what I understand. And all mm-hmm. these notes made no sense, and he con- compiled it and made it into the Brown books, which after a lot of phone calls, yeah. right? And then that got compiled and made into homes, and then essentially you're, yep. you you've you've got the the final distillation before it goes off to the mass manufacturing, which is the next in- incarnation, really. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is really that that moment when it all kind of congealed and finally was set right and this this really does set the standard the they broke the mold after this that couldn't change anything yeah <laughs> yeah um when holmes directs you to ad and d it's very obvious there's stuff in holmes that maybe gary had intended to put in ad and d but he didn't and you can notice that from the ad and d monster manual because for instance you will not find anything in the ad and d first edition monster manual with an armor class of 10 the lowest is always nine. And there's a running debate, as we used to do on another podcast, as to whether the first edition Monster Manual was actually more of an AD&D product or more of an original D&D product. Because it was really kind of a halfway thing. And Holmes was kind of a halfway thing between Brown Book and, quote-unquote, AD&D. But then, like you said, it got really ironed down for... Moldvay and for Moldvay, Mincer, the classic D and D, the Challenger set rules. Like essentially, these rules are going to stay uniform. There'll be tweaks here and there, but it's going to be this rule set. So yeah, definitely. Okay, Liz, number two. Number two. I wish All that right. sounded better. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, I guess I'll jump back to basic myself and um, give a shout out for how well. 
it walks you through the steps of creating your own dungeon. I thought that was really well written out and explained how to make your own for someone who's brand new to all of this. While the sample dungeon itself was kind of meh, the explanation of how to make one right before that, I was just really impressed with. Yeah, the Haunted Keep, I mean, it was serviceable as a sample dungeon, but when you compare it to Under the Tower of Xenopus from Holmes Basic, it just was very vanilla, very black. Uh, on the other hand, though, you had that trap door in the floor of room number four that goes down to the second level. And thanks to the steps that they give you right before this sample dungeon, you can now make level two however you want, which was not something that was really given to you as an option in Holmes Basic. Yeah, it would have been harder because the, he had put in that whole denouement with the octopus and everything. So Yeah, so yeah, you had kind of a meh first level for the Haunted Keep, but you had all of the building blocks right there to expand upon it and make it super cool. And the Mulvey box set came with Keep on the Borderlands module as well, so that certainly got flavor. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I kind of can't help but wonder, was Haunted Keep, as the sample, deliberately kept bland, anticipating that a player or a new dungeon master would be taking those steps on making their own stuff and adding to it and making it more than what you just had straight out of the box? Probably, because this version, I mean, yeah, the Holmes D&D said it was for t ages 12 and up, but as a refurbished brown book, it was written for a high school level. Molde was when they really started moving it to actually talk to 12-year-olds and not just smart 12, 13-year-olds like we were. Well, I was allegedly smart. My grade certainly didn't show it, but... <laughs> Just like Socrates corrupting the young and Ozzy Osbourne. Yes. Socrates. <laughs> Socrates. I believe it was the great Socrates who said, I drank what? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, Carvet, what's your number two? All right, uh, let me dumb this down a little. Because we're getting way too smart with all our smart thinking stuff. I like yeah, the pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, it did have some pretty good art. It did have good art. And this is because I read the, the Menser set that kind of comes after this. And although, um, you know, Elmore and um, oh, I forgot the other guy. Easily. Easily. Yeah, Elmore and Easily do a good job. There's not a whole lot of art and it doesn't mix very well. It just feels like I'm reading a textbook. Whereas in the Moldvay cook set, it still feels it really it does cement that old school feel. Yeah, I know Holmes is your favorite, and that's great. I'm totally cool with it. But yeah, you know Bill Willingham's piece, I think, right in the front, inside the front cover. I love yeah. Jeff D's work. Jeff D has a restraining order against me, but you know it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I like I like William Willingham's art. I used to collect Elemental Comics. Oh yeah. I hated I hated that he went over and did Ironwood, but whatever. <laughs> But uh, whatever pays the yeah, bills, I guess. <laughs> but um, but you were talking about the appropriateness of the art, and for anyone who knows that me, DM Bl Mike is blind, I remember all this stuff because mm. I'm that big a nerd. Um, <laughs> if you look by the disintegrate spell in Expert, you see a picture of a wizard disintegrating a dragon. 
and that's really cool. Art is good, but if it actually has something to do with the, the subject being discussed around it, it's even better. Not just random clip art yeah. plopped yeah. in. Hey, sometimes you can only afford so much, Liz. You and your <laughs> big budget. <laughs> Maggie budgets, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Uh, that's I, I'm just saying they they took the art that they had and they placed it appropriately. You know, speaking of Willingham, there is I remember that image of the Pegasus that he had. I always really liked that one. Also, I guess it was a. Uh, Jeff D with the um, the Morgan Ironwolf um, mm. image, you know, where she's kind of, you know, sort of half bent over with the sword up. I love D's art, although Morgan Ironwolf had some huge hair. That she, well, she it was nineteen eighty. She had some big other things too, but I remember she had that eighties <laughs> hair. That was like yeah, wham. I, yeah, I think know? she had really huge eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's used to drawing superheroes, so he's good at the dynamic posing. Yeah, so I, and I let she it slide. was superheroically proportioned. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> little little bit of side trivia. Somewhere around here, I've got my SCA membership card from 1986, I believe, my very first one. And the first name I chose was Siegfried Ironwolf because of that. <laughs> yeah. You kept the wolf, at least as your... Um, as my arms, yeah. Yeah, your arms, even, even though you I've changed all, the name. And all historical instead, so... Mm. But anyway, <laughs> okay, my number two is in the expert book, it gave a very comprehensive price list. Most anything you're going to need is in there, all the way up to vessels, transport, and the monthly hiring of specialists, whether it's guards, rowers, people to build your castle or stuff. It's really great. One of the things I love about Mulvey Cook is I really feel like with these two books, you've got D&D. You've got a good campaign. Maybe Liz and I are weird, but we normally tended to retire characters around 14th level anyway. So it's like with these two books, you're golden. You don't need anything else. But what about the so, immortal? I'm not sure rules? I've made it past twelfth level ever, really. The only time I have run higher level characters than that is when we have specifically rolled up, say, a fifteenth or twentieth level character for a module that required fifteenth or twentieth level characters. But actually running them up, I've never gone beyond fourteen. Well, what about you, Corbett? I have played. Well, see, see, running it from beginning to the point. I think maybe I think I had a character that made the eighteen, and it was pretty. Woo-hoo. It was no, <laughs> <laughs> no. You're thinking, oh, you're that sad person. <laughs> that was what you meant no, to say. No, no. <laughs> no, no. Well, sad person, junior high. We had a campaign where everybody was running characters between fortieth and fiftieth level. That's <laughs> those sad people right here baby (laughs) it was 13 what do you want (laughs) but i did have an idea reading through this and thinking about well thinking about the the becm how do you say that becm becm beck me me. thinking about the beck me set and like it would be kind of cool to play a displaced storyline like starting off in the immortal storyline or or as your character's group sitting around talking about how great it was in the day and then playing your characters as the younger levels through whatever adventure it was that was going to happen that night. And the funny thing is, even if you died at the end of it, you can say just like uh, Munchausen or Baron Munchausen, you know, but that was the first time I died. (laughs) (laughs) 
and just keep going on with the story. It'd be fun to kind of tell this long story in little bits and pieces as a as a thought. Yeah, so the adventure being reminiscences. Yeah. Instead of the TV reminiscences where it's basically, we don't have anything to do this week, so we're going to have everybody <laughs> think of prior episodes. It would be so. pretty, if you if you made a very tasty character in the end, like, you know, missing an eye and having a robotic falcon, or, you know, just all kinds of crazy stuff to tell the story of, oh, how did this happen? Well, let me tell you. That would be a fun, like, hand-around D&D game where each person would DM and they tell their story, essentially, from the perspective that they want to say it from. It could be hilarious. Yeah, well, it would be fun. You'd have to have the right set of players, though. But that doesn't that pertain game. to this game because that's Beck Me and this is Basic Expert. Sorry. <laughs> How dare you digress. <laughs> okay, so that's my number two. Number one, Liz, bring it over. Number one. All righty. Well, okay. Um, I'm going to end as I began with the introduction. This time to the basic rule book. And... <laughs> I just found this incredibly hilarious where the introduction to the basic rule set starts off in all caps. Important! This book was designed to be used with the Dungeons and Dragons trademark basic rule book. The rules presented in this book require the use of information presented in the Dungeons and Dragons trademark basic rule book. If you do not own the previous volume, purchase it and read it thoroughly before attempting to play with the rules presented here. Or you'll die. Or you'll die. Yes. Like, okay, that's there so is no way. There's no way you can use the rules in this expert rulebook unless you have the basic rulebook. Because if you try to use them with anything else, it's just going to explode and (laughs) nothing will work. The (laughs) irony is, though, you can't read that until you've already bought it and opened it up to read the book. (laughs) Yes. Read it thoroughly before attempting to play. Or you're Don't like, oh, do it. Doom, doom, go now. Yeah, can <laughs> totally see Admiral Akbar standing right by the rack and going, "Don't buy it. It's a trap." <laughs> so, um, yeah, the the introduction to expert kind of left a little something to be desired, as opposed to the introduction or the foreword to the basic rules, which was utterly awesome. <laughs> yeah, expert didn't play around; it got right into the into the meat of. It's like it's. Bold face, all caps. <laughs> Trust the graphic designer to go go for that. It's like, geez, if only I, they had underlined it. If only. And, and three exclamation <laughs> points. I, I, I don't think it's that bad. I, I I think you could probably use it without that because, no. you know, quite frankly, it goes into you know it recaps a lot of the basic stuff <laughs> you could probably do it no, no. I, I think you could there you <laughs> i did love your infamous pausing for the restricted and trademark symbols <laughs> but it is Dungeons a really and dragons <laughs> trademark <laughs> it is a really good point that this is about that time when it's about to become this big commercialized thing they're about to be so $1 big. sign r <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the money. Mm. Yeah, and well, you know, it kind of reminded me of the of the Marvel superheroes <laughs> box set, where every single time anyone Spider-Man, or anything <laughs> was in, was mentioned, you got to put a trademark symbol at every Met single. That's the Hulk t- t- TM. Oh. Then the Hulk TM said to Spider-Man TM, <laughs> <laughs> "What's your trademark TM?" <laughs> Uh, yeah. Or the infamous co- trademarking Nazi in the Indiana Jones RPG. Yeah. Steven Spielberg. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes, the fun. So, All right, Corbin, it's your shot. Number one. This may be hard to believe, but I've got a dumb one. But it's one that I really meant to mention a lot earlier. Okay. <laughs> the Cave Locust from the basic rule set. I have never run into one of these in a game and I'm wondering why people don't just keep them around for the pets because they <laughs> sound ridiculously awesome and I don't know yeah, why they exist basic got a, a lot of really big bugs yes they did but it was a bug that lived on yellow mold it actually eats yellow mold that's its diet yellow mold and what shriekers yeah I think so <laughs> it's like the perfect pet to take down into a cave like well this will just take along the cricket <laughs> And, and if you keep like fifteen of them, you can neutralize any sleep spells that hit you. <laughs> well, and they also they also uh, was it they, they spit a gooey substance. What is it? They 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 make a stink attack. Basically, that will if you fail, you are stunned for one turn. Going ah, literally, <laughs> it, it describes it a little more colorfully. But basically, yeah, you do that, and it's then a yuck bug. No, then you get used to it. Now, this is the funny part. You get used to it, and then you you are okay to walk around stinking to high heaven, but anybody who approaches you <laughs> will then have to make a save or become violently ill. And that's there where they leave it. You know, like, you'll just have to wash it off later. But <laughs> you know, I could see some players going, hey, let's all get covered with this, and then when we get used to it, when we go attack creators, they'll have to... Th- save or vomit throw up every time they fight us man that's awesome <laughs> that's what i'm thinking why don't you keep a pack I, of I these want this for my familiar <laughs> <laughs> i totally would if i was a halfling i'd ride one <laughs> and see you know liz you should like them too because they're a two hit die creature so there's no chance of them accidentally killing you <laughs> yeah. well if they killed me it would not be an accident they're purely intentional killing you well good so, everyone, get a cave locust today. <laughs> TM. <laughs> T- <laughs> TM, that's right. With our forgiveness to, to Wizards of the Coast, Tactical Studies Rules, and the IRS. So, okay, my number one, and this is going to seem rather bookish and nerdy, but it's my number one, Glossary and Index. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> In- Especially for brand new people, God, this would have helped me so much when I started with Holmes. Especially the glossary. Instead of looking up things, fortunately, I had it in world book encyclopedias and dictionaries, so I could do that. But you know, not everybody did. And like Holmes said in that Dragon Fifty Two article, you know, he said it was great because most modern American kids hear mace and they think a can of spray. Yeah, yeah. a cleric can only use a mace. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, for the so, longest time, I thought a two-handed sword was like with um, bicycle handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually cool sounding. That could be 
I, I figured that, that... Be an awesome alien. What the dwarven great sword? It's a two-handed sword. It's like, you know, <laughs> like picture of BMX handles. You know, the little, little it's got awesome. two handles. To be fair here, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that pull arm, the one that's the, the Lucerne, Lucerne hammer. hammer. <laughs> you know, it was a long time before I realized that that was not actually a hammer yeah. and that it was a bladed weapon and your cleric could not use it. Well, it <laughs> does have a hammer, sort of, but yeah, it's mostly blades. Yeah, it's, it's like there was no picture of it in the book, AD&D, and yeah. it said it was a hammer and so I thought it was okay, <laughs> and I think it was not until the Unearthed Arcana when they actually had the pictures of all of the different pole arms yeah. ever. As yeah. like, whoa, <laughs> I've been doing this wrong. <laughs> on a side note, Liz, yes? isn't it fun to be on a podcast where we can talk about other versions of D&D and not get yelled at by the fans? It is. At least not yet. <laughs> not yet. Give them time. <laughs> TM. <laughs> Damn, that's right. Because time is now trademarked <laughs> by someone. By someone, wholly owned subsidiary of Pendex. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to go to our break, and then when we come back, we'll see what makes the save and what fails the save. You and your Spider-Man. Can you tell us who is who? Is Superman on the left? No, right. Underoos look out of sight. Superman! All of us were all good guys. The Hulk! You can pick your favorite if you try. Yes, you can! Underwear is fun to wear. It's true when it's you and your underoos. Wow, now there's a Dukes from the Dukes of Hazard. Bull Luke and General Lee, it's true. Are all on your underoos. What makes a save and what is going to take half? The best worst, here we are. What makes the saving throw and what fails the saving throw in Basic Expert D&D, Mulvey Cook, 1980. We're going to start this time with Corbett. Okay, making the save, I go back to what you had mentioned before in a, a little looser term this time, but the uh, the system. The system made the save because it's still remembered to this day. When you say you have an 18 strength in something, everybody knows what an 18 strength means. There's no confusion. There's no upset or like, ah, I don't understand. It's, no, this is, this is the main rules. These are the clarified main rules to be, to be exact. These are probably the closest thing to what, what was really supposed to be. And, mm. uh, I love the fact that that's, that's a legacy. That's pretty amazing. Okay. Liz, what makes this save? Okay. Going over how they do spells. I did really like. How, especially in the in the basic book, but I believe you know also a little in the expert as well. When they're talking about the different spells, giving you the um, explanations of them, several times they will also give examples of how the spell is used within the body of the explanation of the spell, which I thought was a really nice touch and very useful for brand new players who might not fully understand well this is what the spell does here is an example of that spell in use it's like oh okay yeah so i thought that was really nicely done and okay. I, I wish more games did that yeah well trying to intro to new people mm -hmm. and that's what gets to what makes the save for me 
is that even to this day, if someone came to me and said, can you recommend me something to read to learn how to play D&D? I'd give them as much, again, as much as I love my homes, I'd give them a copy of Mulvey Basic. Then maybe, you know, Cook Marsh expert once they felt got their feet under them. But yeah, I think this would hold up even today. And did I mention the description of combat? It was so clear. (laughs) It was so, so just right there. And it was awesome. Now, don't make the save. What doesn't make the save? Corbett. You know, this is my general complaint about D&D. I feel bad dumping it on Moldvay for this, but I really hate that wizards are like just one-hit wonders. One-hit, one-spell wonders. I, I am sort of frustrated with that as a continuance through the classic D&D set. Not that I want them to be so powerful, but I'd like them to be a little powerful. <laughs> well, I think it compensates for that a bit by the cheapness of of getting scrolls or making spell scrolls. Yeah. That can help somewhat because it's only 100 gold pieces. And, you know, most starting gold, the wizard ain't going to have much to spend it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. That magic user class was designed to compensate for being really powerful later on by being really weak to begin with. Well, and, but the thing is, I never played that far. So, I mean, on average, as a wizard? I don't know. By the time you're 7th or 8th level wizard, you're starting to really kick butt. Well, yeah, and that's when everybody quits and wants to start again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. Yeah, like, you know. Great. It's like, darn it, I just learned fly. <laughs> <laughs> I well, fly and fireball now. What do you mean you want to stop? <laughs> and invisibility. That can be exasperating. But, you know, it, it's like I think I only met one person in, in my entire gaming area during the 80s who actually played up to being a bard in AD&D. Because it just took so freaking long yeah, to get true. there. And yeah, more often than not, year or two, campaign shuts down and restarts. So I, I can, I'll buy that, that that's a negative. Okay, Liz, what doesn't make okay. the save? What does not make the save? Water termites. <laughs> <laughs> more bugs. Really? <laughs> yeah, they chew up water and eventually no, causes it to no. collapse. <laughs> <laughs> they chew up the bottom of ships. The only reason for water termites to even exist is to just make trouble for players when they're trying to go someplace over water. Well, how are you going to get them to crash on the Isle of Dread? (laughs) That's what storms are for. (laughs) You don't need water termites. But you can have water termites instead of the water just getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed. (laughs) Yeah. Storms but- at sea are a time-honored tradition for moving <laughs> an adventure along. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like you get- stupid water termites that expel ink like a weird octopus. It's like, oh. they, they make no sense. Yeah. They're well, dumb. Jumping back over to AD&D, it's kind of like the ear seeker. The only thing, reason this thing exists is to screw up the lives of thieves who listen at doors. That's that's all they're for. Well, yeah. <laughs> Underwater gorillas. How about that? That one works. <laughs> that way, see, that way you can have a 10-story tall ship that you have to work yeah. your way down and the gorillas pulling <laughs> off planks and throwing them at you. Or the water <laughs> termite. That's why it's 10 feet, because you know, every level that gets flooded, by the time you get where you're going, you've still got three or four fl- levels, and you're we've good. Got, we've got a whole new way to play Donkey Kong now, so that's cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
water termites coming at you from below. You've got the giant gorilla <laughs> at the top. <laughs> no matter what happens, you're toast. Yep. My fail to save is I, I understand why they did it for basic, but for expert, I really think they could have afforded to throw in a couple extra classes. Stuff mm. like ranger, druid, paladin. They do eventually sort of bring them in in when you go to the Mincer Companion, etc. But they're more like prestige classes, which are silly. Not well, they're not so silly for a paladin, but yeah, for a druid. I've been a cleric for X number of levels, but now I suddenly decide to give it all up and and go in the woods, and I can't wear <laughs> plate armor anymore. But I can use a scimitar, but I can't. I, I like wood. Now I really yeah. like Birkenstocks for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and listening to Jethro Tull. Yeah. Songs from the Wood. Yeah. Hey, I, I like Jethro Tull. <laughs> Be quiet. Liz is a druid. Oh, that explains a lot, actually. That's why all those wasp bees, yellow jackets attacked me this summer. <laughs> I made some comment about druids and Liz Sikamami. That's what it was. Anyway. All right. Well, this is our has been our opinions of the Moldvay Basic D&D Rules book and the Expert D&D Rules book written by Seb Cook and Steve Marsh. Agree with us? Don't agree with us? Think we're nuts? Want to put a trademark on something? Write <laughs> us at saveforhalfpodcast at gmail.com. Trademark. <laughs> trademark. <laughs> and in our new tradition of going out of the show i'm going to ask everybody if you were a character in this game what would you be we'll start with liz and you can't be a druid because they don't have it (laughs) well rats (laughs) okay well i guess if i was going to be a character i would be an elf trademark trademark (laughs) elf because elves kick butt because that's right Armor and weapons and spells and, and naturally good with tenth, swords and bows. They have a tenth level cap, which is great because I almost never play past tenth so level. Anyway, gives up round so. level seven and eight, right, Corbett? That's right. Yep. So you know, <laughs> level caps are are not, not a problem for me. So. Okay, Corbett. I I would probably be a halfling because halfling. I, I like playing Halflings short. Are good. <laughs> Yeah, and Xenopus on the Xenopus Archives, blatant plug. TM. It's a TM. It's a Holmes basic series, but he brought out a point that if played right, the halfling in basic D and D is kind of basic D and D's ranger. Yeah, I didn't think of that. If you look, yeah, if you look at it right, I mean, you can do that. So that and the way they describe halflings in the expert book talking about when you get lame level and you can you know build your own shire and stuff and they say halflings when not adventuring like to basically relax with their friends and eat and drink and you know have a good time it's like okay so when they're not adventuring halflings party okay sure <laughs> they're game yeah they're they're people you know they like to party, party. and so Woo-hoo. mike are you a chaotic intelligent sword or Better. <laughs> I'm I'm a cave locust. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a character. That stinks. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me where it says I can't be one. 
Fine, I'm a dwarf with with a cave locust. How about that? All right, <laughs> a trained one. So trained attack no, cave locust. There are no XP progression tables for cave locust, and that's why you can't be a cave locust character. I don't cave because cave locusts don't have to rise in level. They're just that cool. <laughs> <laughs> They've already got two hit dice. That's like second level already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't need any more. They rock. So no, anyway, they stink. <laughs> All right, before Liz totally loses it and murders us, we're going to go. And we'll be seeing everybody at episode four. Say goodnight, everybody. Good night, everybody. Adios, muchachos. Briark. And it really fits for this one. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half.